Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We're going to talk about nuclear power on the program today. Later in the program, the business case for sustainability. Last week, on Wednesday to be specific, Mark Linus, author of The God Species, Saving the Planet in the Age of Humans, joined us for the hour. And Mark Linus says we need to embrace nuclear power as part of any successful portfolio of solutions to climate change. We can't do it without nuclear power. Many fellow environmentalists disagree. And today on the program, we're going to get a rebuttal on nuclear power from Matt Pachenza, Policy Director with the Healthy Environmental Alliance of Utah, or HEALD Utah. Later in the program, as I mentioned, the business case for sustainability with Hunter Lovins, president of Natural Capitalism Solutions. She was on the Weber State University campus recently to give the keynote address uh, to the Intermountain Sustainability Summit. And uh, so we begin with uh, Matt Pachenza. Uh, Matt Pachenza, welcome to the program. Good morning, Tom. How are you? Good morning. Uh, Very well. How about you? Thank you. Uh, So the sequence of events, we uh, had an opportunity to uh, interview Mark Linus, uh, prominent because of several books, the latest of which is The God Species. He has a couple of controversial views among fellow environmentalists. The uh, most controversial probably is his view on nuclear power. He converted to uh, being a proponent of nuclear power uh, a few years ago. And he says we can't do it without nukes. We'll get into that a little later in the program. Um... And uh, Matt Pachenza emailed me after the program, said uh, maybe that point of view could use some rebuttal. I agreed. So here's Matt Pachenza. Uh, let's uh, start with a bit from that interview. Here's Mark Linus. I did, of course, bring up Fukushima and another, a couple of other objections to nuclear power. Here's that conversation a couple of minutes, and then we'll get uh, some rebuttal to this from Matt Pachenza. Wherever Greens are politically powerful, then they've stayed away from nuclear power, which is one of the reasons why I say the Green movement is substantially responsible for global warming, because everywhere where, where um, nuclear power stations were not built, people ended up burning coal. It's not like the lights went out or anyone used any less electricity. And so the, the real challenge, I think, for the Green movement is not to make the perfect the enemy of the good always. And, and nuclear is a very good case of that. Now, I have actually been to Fukushima. Um, and uh, we were, I was there filming and, and talking to refugees, and I took my dosimeter, and I looked at the actual levels of, of radiological contamination. So I do speak from some sort of direct personal knowledge on that. Um, and it was certainly it was, a, it was the second worst um, nuclear disaster ever after Chernobyl. There's no doubt about that, and there's no doubt that a lot of radiation was released. Um, but, you know, of the 19,000 people who were killed in that natural disaster, none have died from radiation. In fact, no, no one has even re- received a dose which is, which is significant in terms of their own health. So it's a, it's, a, it's a moderate industrial accident. This isn't the apocalypse, and it isn't a reason for countries to, uh, to get out of nuclear and therefore drastically increase their carbon emissions, which is now what's happened in Japan, and it's also beginning to happen in Germany and other countries as well, which are phasing out nuclear power. Hmm. Uh, isn't the potential, though, for you know, for for extreme uh, environmental damage there with with nuclear. I mean, most most nuclear plants run just fine, but if, uh, if we were to, you know, the worst case scenario is is considerably worse than in, in a lot of ways we produce our energy. Not not really environmental damage. Um, I think it's a certainly it's a human health and safety issue, but so is any other 
um, large-scale industrial process. You know, they could be a fertilizer plant, they could be a pesticide plant, they could be, you know, any number of things which which can cause evacuations temporarily or even permanently. You know, um, when the Three Gorges Dam was built in China, that produces 22 gigawatts of clean power, but a million people are evacuated from that zone permanently because otherwise they'd have drowned when the lake came into being. So, every energy source has has its impact, has its social and its its environmental impact. And environmentally speaking, nuclear is about the most benign because you use very very tiny amounts of, of, of material, you know, namely fissile uranium, to generate n- literally enormous quantities of, of energy. Uh, and, and you have a small amount of waste left over, which, which can be safeguarded. Uh, and so it doesn't have an effect on the biosphere. You know, there's no, no one's ever been hurt from nuclear waste. No species has ever gone extinct from nuclear waste. It's not running into our watercourses. There's so much mythology about this that when you, when, you, when you try and get to the facts and you try and say, okay, well, what, what are the costs and benefits of nuclear as opposed to other energy technologies? It comes out pretty positive. That's Mark Linus speaking to me on Wednesday on Axis Utah. He's author of The God Species, Saving the Planet in the Age of Humans. He's an environmentalist who has converted to uh, uh, nuclear power. He says that nuclear is uh, an essential part of any portfolio of solutions. We got some comments on Facebook to uh, the prospect of uh, speaking with Matt Pachenza. I characterized uh, Mark Linus's uh, comments as uh, saying that nuclear power is relatively safe. Dave Barker writes on Facebook, uh, Utah Public Radio's Facebook site, relatively safe. Ask the Japanese people what they think of that statement. We'll have some other comments as we go along. Your comments as well right now at 1 800 826 1495. 1 800 826 1495. Uh, if you don't like nuclear, uh, what is the solution? What is, should the portfolio of solutions look like? We'll ask Matt Pachenza as we go along as well. Matt Pachenza, I want you to respond to several. There's several arguments there from Mark uh, Linus. Um, it, he characterizes Fukushima, for example, as a moderate industrial accident. Yeah, I think that there's some dispute on that. Yeah, let me say first, first of all, my biggest challenge here is that, as we all know, the British accent adds about 15 points of IQ <laughs> to true. how we how we perceive someone. So I'm never going to sound as smart as Mark. And, and, and Mark Klein is a very, very charming gentleman. Uh, so, yeah, go Absolutely. ahead. Yeah, I think, you know, I think my biggest issue with Mark and, and other folks um, who share his perspective is that they narrow in on safety and risk issues as if those are the only concerns that environmentalists have with nuclear power. Um, so we can get into that more later. But here in Utah, we have an actual proposed nuclear power project. And the truth is, we're spending a lot less time talking about Fukushima and a lot more time talking about money and talking about water. Um, and those issues, I think, were literally never mentioned in, in the lengthy interview he did with you. Mm-hmm. But we can return to Fukushima and to talking about safety. And I think it's fair to say that he paints the picture of the research into the actual effects of what happened there as much clearer than I think it is. And I would highlight a a study that came out of Stanford University, um, a Dr. Mark Jacobson, who led a team that are estimating that there will be approximately 1,500 extra cancer deaths. Um, and that's a big number, and those are you know real real changes in real folks' lives and shortening real folks' lives and, and the associated cost that comes with that. Um, in terms of the actual cost of Fukushima to the Japanese people, um, the main impacts have been evacuations. That so you have, I believe, eighty thousand folks that were forced to leave their homes, and the vast majority have not come home. 
and then you have um, uh, somewhere along the line of 25,000 businesses that have shut down, uh, and that includes farms and fisheries. That's a fairly um, agricultural region of Japan. And so all of that adds up to, I believe, the newest estimates of the economic toll of Fukushima is $150 billion. Um, and those are real dollars, and, and those are not you know, simply what might come someday. That's what's happening now. And so, you know, I, I think he, he paints this image like, well, the science is 100 percent on my side and no one would disagree. And there's there's no nuance here and there's no black and there's no gray. And I think, unfortunately, if you just sort of take a step back and look broadly at what's come out of there, that there is disagreement. And we don't precisely know what the toll is. And, and that's not just health, but it's economic as well. What about waste, nuclear waste? We didn't get into this much in my interview with uh, with Mark Linus, but uh, the, the the waste that will be with us for a long, long time. Right, and I think you know we know full well in Utah that this is again not just a sort of theoretical issue, but a practical one. Um, we of course have eighty miles west of Salt Lake City um, an energy solutions facility which takes you know somewhere around ninety five ninety seven percent of the nation's um, commercial low level radioactive waste, and the vast majority of that comes from nuclear power plants. Um, and it, it it's dangerous, and it remains dangerous for decades and and, it, and sometimes even centuries. Um, in addition to that, practically in, in Utah, we have a proposal on the table, which our state regulators are going to be grappling with now in coming months and year to accept up to a million tons of depleted uranium, um, a material left over when you enrich uranium. And that material remains dangerous for literally hundreds of thousands of years. And so, again, the facility at which Mr. Linus wants to sort of say, well, we, we don't have any proven health cost of this. No one's died from nuclear waste. It's not a problem. I think the truth is that we're at the very beginning of an extremely long period of having to make sure that we handle this stuff safely. Um, and I think that, you know, we have this material coming to Utah, traveling on our roads, traveling on our rails. We have workers who handle it when it gets here. And then we have it, you know, disposed of, you know, in a pile on the ground. And when you think long term, I think I'm not as confident as he is to be able to simply say, well, no problem. No one's been hurt. Move on. Nothing to see here. Hmm. I think that the reality is more complicated. And again, it's we've got a long road ahead of us to worry about it. What about Mark Linus's argument that, environmentally speaking, nuclear is the most benign of a, of a range of uh, energy uh, solutions, if I could uh, use that pun, uh, for, for, for Utah residents? Uh, in other words, it's, you know, if you, if you believe it's safe, and that's a big if, and we're talking about that, of course, then it's the most environmentally benign. Yeah, I think, you know, one of the things I find curious about Mr. Linus is that he, I think he would describe himself as a technological optimist, and that was probably particularly um, notable when he spoke about uh, the GMOs and food and agriculture, and, you know, he spoke about, you know, plants that could fix their own nitrogen and how we're not there now, but we're going to get there soon, and that's going to make a huge difference. That same optimism and the ability of technology to evolve and find solutions appears to be, however, wholly absent when it comes to the world of renewables. And he, he's absolutely right that, that renewable energy poses some challenges. And the most obvious challenge is what we call intermittency. So to put it bluntly, the sun does not always shine and the wind does not always blow. 
and you know we need electricity 24/7. So the challenge of renewables is to figure out effectively how to store electricity, how to you know have excess electricity that you generate when there's plenty of wind and when there's plenty of sun, and then to store that and then to utilize it you know when when you have that you know demand which is constant. Um, and it's a it's a problem which folks are addressing and beginning to, and they're looking at stuff like compressed air energy storage and storing electricity actually in giant bubbles under the water and, and there is all these crazy ideas and they're they're practically put in, into into um into effect in certain locations and there's a lot of optimism about where we're going with that and i can't sit here right now and say i'm a hundred percent confident that we're going to solve that problem tomorrow but i do think a reasonable person can look at the technology and feel fairly optimistic that renewables can play and increasing and, and, and perhaps ultimately a sort of universal solution um, to, you know, what is what Mark and I would certainly agree on is a legitimate energy crisis. Um, so that, to me, is, is one of the biggest holes in his argument that, you know, nuclear is the benign, but for some reason, wind and solar must remain these sort of small boutique things that can't provide big, large scale solutions. And we do think they can provide big, large scale solutions. And I'm I'm puzzled as to why his optimism stops so sharply at the door of renewables. We're going to be continuing this discussion with Matt Pachenza, Policy Director for Heal Utah. This is in response to a program last week with Mark Linus, author of The God Species, and uh, we're rebutting some arguments that he made on nuclear power and the necessity for nuclear power in any successful uh, portfolio of solutions to climate change. You're welcome to join this conversation. We're going to get in as we go along more in depth to uh, what Matt Pachenza just has just said. Uh, if we cross nuclear off the list, as many environmentalists do, Matt Pachenza does, then are other renewables sufficient? And that's a crucial question, and we're going to get into that uh, as we go along. The number is 1-800-826-1495, 1-800-826-1495, or upraxis at gmail.com, upraxis at gmail.com. You can also join us on our Facebook page, Utah Public Radio. Uh, here is a comment from Aaron Brewer. Um, I'm glad you're having a counterpoint to this interview, talking about the Mark Linus interview. I have to admit I was hoping for more probing questions because some of what he said was so dismissive of the dangers of nuclear. I'm not anti-nuclear, but I think that dismissing other cleaner alternatives is unfortunate. We'll be getting into that. I want to have you uh, maybe go back to nuclear and uh, talk, Matt Pachenza, about some of the other objections to nuclear. You say that some like Mark Linus uh, dismiss the the arguments against as being solely on risk and safety. You're saying maybe equally important is is water use and some other objections to uh, to nuclear. Right, and I think this comes down to whether you're talking about actual proposed reactor projects or sort of the theory of building a thousand a year or whatever he was calling for. Um, you know, he never really seemed to ground his call for more nuclear in any particular location at any particular time. But here in Utah, we've got just that. We have, you know, the proposed Green River nuclear reactors uh, proposed for, uh, you know, a, a site about four miles northwest of the village of Green River. And those would provide, you know, th- 3,000 megawatts of electricity, be you know, two reactors. And we look at that project, and I talk about it all the time. I, I speak in front of the legislature, go to schools and classrooms and all kinds of groups out there. And frankly, we spend most of our time talking about water and talking about money. Um, 
we live, as everyone knows, in a very dry state with a population that's growing quickly with the projected effects of climate change, which are going to greatly or at least significantly reduce the amount of water we have available. And in that context, we're being asked to consider the kind of electricity that uses more water by far than any other kind. And that's just not a theoretical argument. That's a very practical choice about, you know, the Colorado River Basin, the sharply limited amount of water available in it, if there's any at all. And, you know, we've been asked to contemplate, you know, 50,000 acre feet and an enormous amount of water, which would be used to generate this 3,000 megawatts. And so we look at that and we say, look, you know, there's a lot of things to think about when you think about our electricity future. Um, it, there's no one easy answer. Anyone who says there is is certainly fooling themselves. But it does seem reasonable in the Utah context to put water usage very, very high on the list of things to factor into your decisions. And so the fact that that's wholly missing from Mr. Linus's analysis is is uh, discouraging. Um, and then the second big one is money. So. When you talk practically about nuclear today in the United States, it is, by pretty much all accounts, the most expensive avail electricity available out there. Um, the cheapest by far at this point is natural gas, followed pretty closely um, by wind, which has really come down in price. And, and good wind in the best locations um, is coming in very competitive. And at some point after that, you'll get to uh, coal, and at some point after that, solar, depending, and, and nuclear as well. And so, you know, the practical decision that you face is that do you want to ask utility customers to, to see their bills go up quite a bit to support nuclear power? Wouldn't it make more sense, especially in a place like Utah, where we get so little of our electricity from renewables right now? We're just like among the last in the United States, despite all this great sunshine and great wind and open lands. Um, doesn't it make sense if we actually are talking about charging people more money for electricity, you know, we could easily take those additional dollars and pour them into electricity, which we believe is is much more environmentally friendly, um, much more sustainable and, you know, doesn't use up all of our precious water. We're talking on Access Utah on this part of the program with Matt Pachenza, Policy Director for Heal Utah. We're rebutting some arguments on nuclear from environmentalist Mark Linus, author of The God Species, who we heard from on Access Utah last week. We're going to be getting into talking about um, renewable energy and where it might fit, where it'll need to fit in a portfolio of solutions to uh, climate change and uh, Matt, uh, Matt Pachenza for another 10 minutes or 15 minutes. Our first caller is Sarah in Moab. Sarah, glad you called. Go ahead with your question or comments. Uh, yes. One thing Mr. Linus neglected to talk about was the whole uh, fuel cycle which is required for nuclear power. And here in Utah, we have the only operating conventional uranium mill. We have uh, several permitted uranium mines, which are all now on standby, and we have thousands of abandoned uranium mines. And anyone who takes uh, goes to Google Earth or Google Maps and takes an aerial view of the areas in uh, southeast Utah, particularly in San Juan County, you can see the remaining impacts from these uh, uranium mines and uranium uh, exploration drilling. And you go look over in southwest Colorado and you see the same. So what we still have is 
over 50 years of impacts from uranium mining and exploration drilling that have not been remediated. Um, so when you're talking about overall environmental impact, you really have to look at the whole fuel cycle. And when you look at the whole fuel cycle, there have been deaths. Um, and there are a lot of people whose health and well-being has been compromised. Uh, thank you. Thanks, Sarah. Appreciate that. Of course, uh, uranium mining, uh, that's, that's been a big, I guess, boon or problem, or maybe both, in, in the Moab area. Uh, Matt Pachenza, your, your response to that? You know, I think Sarah did a great job explaining it. Um, you know, he spoke at one point in his interview about the very small amount of material needed to generate nuclear power. But the problem, as Sarah says, is you actually start out with quite a large volume of material, and you've got to take it out of the ground, and that poses risks to the folks taking it out of the ground. And then you have to you know, mill it and enrich it in various facilities, and those produce waste on the side, and folks that work there are exposed, and, and you know, communities around and waterways and all of that. So it is a, a complicated process that poses dangers along the way, and it, it's pretty facile to sort of you know, act as if, you know, you just have this little bit of nuclear, you know, fissile material that sort of, you know, you snap your fingers and it shows up. By the way, uh, I was under the impression that the, 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 you know, the Green River nuclear power plant was sort of sidelined at this point. Is is that is Maybe you know a... something I don't know, Tom. Um, okay. Now, the, um, you know, it's a, a somewhat complicated story. The very quick version is that the folks behind it, uh, led by a former state legislator, Aaron Tilton, uh, ultimately coalesced their efforts into a company called Blue Castle Holdings. Um, Blue Castle Holdings did have a significant achievement in that they leased water rights from a couple county conservancy districts. Those water rights were then approved, those leases, by a, the state engineer, a state official that, that takes a look at that. Um, uh, Heal Utah and a number of other organizations um, protested that. We then have taken uh, the unfortunate success, uh, you know, successful approval of that to court. So there is a, a case that will be heard in district court in southern Utah this summer, most likely, um, our effort to overturn the approval of those water rights. Simultaneous to that, they need to raise a lot of money, probably about $100 million, to put together their application to the federal authorities, to the U.S. Nuclear Regulatory Commission. And that is a really comprehensive application that will look at everything from seismicity to water to the river to environmental impacts to emergency planning to all kinds of stuff like that and what we believe and what many people believe is that they are struggling to put together those resources um, and so it gets complicated the details of it i'd be happy to talk about it but the quick version is that there's a lot of folks that strongly believe that blue castle does not have now at least anywhere near that $100 million, and so they're probably sort of stalling for time, as it were, in hopes they can find more investment. So it's a little bit in a stasis, but up till now it has kind of moved forward. We're talking with Matt Pachenza. He's Policy Director for HEAL Utah, Environmental Group in Utah. We're talking nuclear power. We're going to transition the second half of the program talking about um, renewable energy. Um, I believe HEAL Utah is advocating, still advocating, a, an ambitious plan to ramp up renewables in Utah. Is that, that correct, Mr. Pachenza? Uh, absolutely, Tom. Yeah, we, um, 
you know, people ask you an inevitable question when you do the kind of work Hill does and you, know, you have concerns about nuclear power. And then, you know, we have concerns about coal power as well. There's you know, no doubt that poses, you know, huge problems from climate change to pollution to all kinds of stuff. And so folks ask you an important question, which is what's your plan to keep the lights on? And we took that to heart and we raised some significant funds a few years back and were able to commission a study called E-Utah. And in E-Utah, we were able to demonstrate that there does in fact exist plenty of wind and solar to power, you know, Utah's energy future. And we sort of sketched out a scenario where we believe you could, you know, aggressively use natural gas as a bridge toward a fully renewable future. Um, and then that would be the one that would pose, you know, the fewest climate change concerns and, and you know, bring us to a place where we were, you know, able to power the state's needs fully in the way that, you know, was, was sort of balancing best our our water and carbon and all those different factors. Um, so, yeah, we certainly think that's possible. And, and another sort of practical frustration that I have with Mr. Linus is that, you know, he talks about intermittency, this, you know, when the sun doesn't shine and the wind doesn't blow as this problem that is sort of a huge barrier. But in Utah, we're currently getting about 2 to 3% of our electricity that we make in state from renewables. That intermittency problem actually doesn't crop up until you get up to about 25 or 30%. Um, most electricity is actually intermittent for various reasons. They're used to sort of having sources that come online and go offline and balancing them, and, and that's just what you know utility professionals deal with all the time. So we could stand to have massive investments in boosting wind and solar in Utah before we get anywhere near the point at which intermittency poses huge problems. So it's it's a bit of, a, a, to us, a sort of argument people make to, to avoid actually talking about why we're not doing it. I want to get into uh, more in-depth in, into, into that plan. There's some interesting uh, innovations there. Uh, so I wonder if you're uh, able to stay the longer, full hour, Mr. Pachenza? Uh, sure. Uh, we'll we'll change gears here. Uh, phone lines are still open. We'll uh, run the Hunter Lovins interview at a later date because I want to get into more in depth on uh, on what uh, Ms. Pacenza was just talking about. Can renewables really be ramped up to the levels that he's talking about, and uh, take the load uh, for a portfolio of solutions to uh, to climate change? If you cross nuclear, and I believe Heal Utah is wanting to cross coal off the list as well. Uh, so we'll talk more about this following the break. When we come back more with Matt Pachenza from Heal Utah, we'll talk more about nukes and uh, more about renewable energy. And the phone lines are open at 1-800-826-1495, 1-800-826-1495, or upraxis at gmail.com. Upraxis at gmail.com is the uh, email. And uh, you can join us on our Facebook page as well, Utah Public Radio. More following the break. Support for Access Utah comes from the Utah Humanities Council, enriching cultural, intellectual, and civic life by providing opportunities for all Utahns to explore life's most engaging questions and the wonders of the human experience. Forty years ago, Richard Davidson was a psychology grad student at Harvard who dreamed of studying the emotional life of our brains. These days, the neuroscience of emotion is one of the hottest topics in science, and Davidson is famous for his pioneering research on mindfulness. We'll talk with him next time, under the best of our knowledge, from PRI, Public Radio International. Sunday mornings at 9 on Utah Public Radio. Support for Utah Public Radio is provided by area-info.net. 
providing a social media outlet for personalized national, financial, and lifestyle news. And travel and entertainment information is at area-info.net. I'm Tom Williams. You're listening to Access Utah. We're speaking for the hour with Matt Pachenza, Policy Director with Healthy Environmental Alliance of Utah, or Heal Utah. And uh, we're speaking in response to some comments made last week on Access Utah by Mark Linus, who's an environmentalist, author of several books on climate change, the most recent of which is The God Species, Saving the Planet in the Age of Humans. Somewhat controversially, he says that we need to embrace nuclear power. Also, GMOs, genetically modified organisms, as parts of any successful portfolio of solutions to climate change. Many fellow environmentalists, of course, disagree. We're getting rebuttal on nuclear power, and we're asking Matt Pacenza if we really can um, sustain the sorts of uh, energy development that we need from renewables in the future, given the, the, the challenges posed by uh, climate change and the goals to, uh, to get to a greener economy, greener energy sources. Is it really possible to move beyond solar and wind as, as boutique elements in that plan to, uh, to really ramp those up? And uh, Matt Pacenza, we do have an email from Gerald in Clarkston, which uh, which talks about this, expresses some of these sentiments. Uh, he says, how many more deaths would have occurred if nuclear power weren't part of the equation? How much more carbon dioxide would have been spewed into the atmosphere in place of nuclear power? I'm all for renewable energy, but it's disingenuous to say we should get rid of nuclear power when the science is not there yet to ramp up other renewables in any kind of fashion to replace all nuclear energy that would make it feasible for the average Utah. That's Gerald in Clarkston. Uh, so your yeah, response? I, I think, you know, we look around at governments and states that have these aggressive targets of moving toward many more renewables, whether you want to talk about Germany or California or you know Colorado and such places. And, you know, they're moving aggressively to, you know, 30, 40, 50 percent renewables within the next decade or two. And I don't think Germany wants to make itself this, you know, third world backwater place of where the power never comes on and they're you know, people have to, you know, bring wheelbarrows full of cash to pay their electricity bills. So, you know, somehow they are able to sketch out a future with a wide range of renewable technologies and a few other things and to see how that's going to work. It's going to be reliable. It's going to be affordable. And it's going to allow, you know, a nation like Germany, certainly one of the most successful in the world, to sort of maintain that position. So it can be done. And it is being done. And sadly, in Utah, we're basically, you know, at the very bottom of the the list of places investing in it. So I do think there are are actual barriers to overcome. And we can talk about those. Storage is one, intermittency is one, um, you know, land is another. I mean, there are actual difficulties, and I don't don't want to downplay those. Um, But we're, we're so far, at least in this part of the world, away from the point at which those become a practical problem, that again, all this sort of skepticism to me feels in a lot of ways like, you know, it plays into the hands of, one of, of the folks who want to see us keep those coal power plants going as long as possible. Let's hear another clip from Mark Linus. This is my interview with him on Wednesday, and he's talking about this balance. You know, what can be done with renewables versus nuclear power versus the other energy sources. This is the balance that, that he portrays. So what changed for you then? You did, the early books were doom and gloom. You grew up thinking doom and gloom, now you're not in that, that camp. Um, I, I think I just 
began to see that there were practical solutions out there which would work. And, and my conversion to, to nuclear power was essential, an essential part of that, that road, really, because we can't solve this problem only with wind and solar and energy efficiency, which is the conventional sort of green prescription. They will be an important part of it, but they can't do it by themselves. I mean, it's just you, you do the numbers and we're miles off. It's just not possible. So if you, if you hold to that traditional green prescription, then, yes, we're doomed, but we're only doomed because you refuse to, take, <laughs> you refuse to uh, adopt any newer and more interesting solutions. So mm. once you move past that and you say, okay, I'm going to let go of some of this ideological baggage about what technologies I'm, I'm, I'm scared of, uh, you know, we can we can begin to have a much more interesting conversation. You brought up two nuclear. That's where you part company with quite a few greens, right? Yeah, most there, greens. Most there. greens. Yeah, well, there is, but there's a lot of greens now who are coming around to pro nuclear. I mean, I could mention in this country Stuart Brand, who's a icon of the you know 1960s, 1970s environmental movement, uh, and he he discovered nuclear you know a few years ago as well. And we've all been on the same journey where you just think either we're doomed because we can't solve this carbon emissions problem or we're going for nuclear power plus a bunch of other low-carbon solutions, in which case we, can, we need to say, right, let's get on with it. You know, let's start building these things and let's talk to people actually about the real, the real dangers and the real benefits of nuclear rather than having a conversation which is based on scaremongering, a lot of, lot of misinformation which has been built up over many decades. So he, he talks about scaremongering, misinformation. We've uh, dealt with, with some of that uh, with Matt Pachenza, by the way, our guest for the hour uh, from uh, Heal, Utah. I want to, to get to, into maybe more in depth in this point that, that he makes and, and some others that nuclear power is absolutely necessary because he and they believe that uh, geothermal, um, solar, wind, can't be ramped up to the, uh, to the point where they'll need to be ramped up to. I wonder, first of all, Matt Pachenza, would a renewable energy quota help in Utah? Some of the, California has one, for example. So these portfolio standards is what they're you know popularly known as. So you know it's a target which a, a state legislature and a governor would agree to, and then you know require their utilities to ramp up to that target in a certain time frame, you know, decade, twenty years, something like that. And uh, many states in the country have them. Um, Utah actually theoretically has one, but it's non-binding, which makes it not all that impressive. Um, it sort of just throws a number out there and sort of you know, let's cross our fingers and hope we get there. Um, so yeah, we think it's a great idea. To be perfectly frank, Tom, politically in this state right now, it doesn't feel remotely possible. Um, so actually at Heal, we've been um, exploring some different options. There's a, a um, mechanism for boosting renewable power, which is gaining in popularity in some different places. It, it is uh, known under the ungainly name of community choice aggregation. Um, other folks call it uh, green energy buying clubs. But the idea effectively is you would pool the demand of folks who are very interested in renewables and you would use that sort of market force to go out and acquire that power directly. Um, you know, utilities are monopolies and they don't offer us choice. Uh, one of the good analogies out there is that, you know, there are folks out there for whom it's really, really important to buy organic produce for their families. And they will go to a special store and they'll pay a premium price in order to get food that they believe is safer. And the market has adjusted very efficiently to meet those folks' needs. And I think in most parts of this country, um, you know, short of, you know, the most rural places, you can, in fact, get yourself some organic stuff pretty much year-round. Um, but if you take that same analogy and apply it to Electricity, no such thing exists. You do not have the ability 
to go out and use your purchasing power to buy a different kind of electricity. And so we think there are ways to do that, some interesting, creative, clever ways that um, are being adopted everywhere from you know, Illinois to Massachusetts to California. Different communities have sort of demanded this and, and made adjustments to their state law to make it happen. And so we are in the process now, you know, probably a, a process that will take at least a few years, which is to to try to figure out practically what would that mean in Utah? Um, how could we make that happen? Um, one could imagine communities like Park City or Summit County um, being at the leading edge of that, perhaps places like Moab and elsewhere where, um, you know, they would have that large volume of folks who would want to step up and do that. So um, it's it's hardly something we know precisely what it might look like, but we're beginning to, to look down that path because it, frankly, just feels a lot more politically pal- palatable in Utah. It's really hard to sell our state legislator on the notion of sort of let's make this number and get there. But if you say to them, what if we change law so we can let the free market work, then, you know, suddenly you're talking their language. We're talking with Matt Pachenza, Policy Director with Heal Utah. We are imagining a future where renewable energy sources like solar, wind, uh, biothermal, and others are a much bigger part of the energy grid. Is that possible? What are the barriers and what are the opportunities? And we do have this uh, this comment from Kylie Miller in Moab via email, upraxis at gmail.com. By the way, you can comment. We have another 10 minutes or so with Matt Pachenza talking about renewable energy and uh, climate change. 1-800-826-1495 is the number, 1-800-826-1495 or upraxis at gmail.com. Here's what Kylie in Moab says. My wish is that our public lands will stop being sold off for energy extraction and to see subsidies given to homeowners instead of energy corporations so that more people can have rooftop solar panel arrays and home wind generators. Is is that uh, is that possible to ramp that up in the near future? Yes. I mean, there's kind of two things there, right? You've got the public lands, you know, larger scale stuff, and then you've got what's often called distributed, where you, you know, we, we've tended to see electricity as something you make in these giant facilities and then send out, you know, to thousands of homes and businesses. But the truth is that in other parts of the world, and this would come back to Germany now, they, they're much more focused on trying to make it so that individual structures supply as much as their own electricity as possible. And then, you know, they, if they make excess, they return it to the grid. And it's, you know, that's often referred to as distributed. And certainly the potential for doing that is enormous. And prices have really come down. I think I know personally that, you know, I used to think like, oh, putting solar in my house might cost me, you know, 20, 30 grand. And that sounds like an awful lot of money and I'm not sure we can make that happen. You know, my understanding is, you know, that might be more like eight or 10 now. And and so it starts to be a more practical choice for families. And I think more folks are doing it. There's a cool program in Salt Lake called Community Solar, um, a, a way of sort of bringing down prices and getting rid of the headache of finding a contractor on your own. And, and that's being done by one of our, our sister groups called Utah Clean Energy. And so, you know, that, that stuff is happening more. And, and one good example of the kind of thing people talk about is that you know, solar, as an example, is land intensive. You need a bunch of land um, in order to make it happen. But we already have lots of land that we have transformed from its wild state into, you know, places where, you know, it's not like we've got wolves running around. And, and the best example would be parking lots. And one of the, the 
proposals that you see out there is that if you covered a lot of your parking lots and solar panels, um, that could go a long way toward addressing it. And that would not, again, be, you know, transforming, you know, land that's habitat for the sage grouse into, uh, into a solar farm. It would be, you know, it would be transforming a paved parking lot into a solar farm. And that, that seems to be the kind of approach that, you know, is kind of a win-win. The, the plan that you've uh, proposed, Heal Utah has proposed, I'm reading an article in the New York Times, by the way, uh, you can find out more. By the way, uh, you can go to, uh, to the website, which is healutah.org, and get links to a lot of uh, interesting information here. Talking with Matt Pachenza with Heal Utah, talking about renewable energy, and uh, can we really ramp that up and make that a major part of our energy grid? in an effort to solve some climate change problems. Uh, Mark Linus, my guest last week, says, no, we need nuclear power. Heal Utah is saying cross nuclear off the list and, in fact, cross coal off the list, right, Matt Pachenza? Well, I think, you know, I think we should transition as smoothly as we can away from it. And I think, obviously, you know, there's no one out there, I don't think, practically, who's going to tell you that we should shut every coal power plant down tomorrow because, you know, we need we need the grid and we need you know, folks need electricity. Um, but if we can move fairly efficiently and smoothly and aggressively away from it, that's obviously a best case scenario. Um, this this may not be an opinion of Heal Utah, more of, of me, but I do think natural gas provides the best sort of medium term um, transition away from coal toward these other things. It, it, as you may know, produces half as much carbon as coal, and it's actually about 90% cleaner when it comes to, you know, particulate matters, the stuff that chokes our valleys and makes us sick and, you know, gives kids autism and, and all kinds of terrifying stuff. So, um, you know, that is one way to sort of have even a quicker transition away from the dirtiest kind of electricity, obviously, which coal is. Um, now, let me just say, because you get some angry emails in the Facebook posts about natural gas and about fracking and all of that, and it is absolutely true that taking natural gas out of the ground provides a whole host of concerns and challenges that we need to take a close look at. Um, and those are, you know, locally being felt and are critical and important. And by no means am I saying, you know, natural gas is the solution for centuries to come. But if you factor in all the different environmental concerns from the carbon to the particulate matter to everything else, it, it probably provides us the best um, you know, interim transition strategy for, let's say, the next few decades. Hmm. I want to follow up on uh, on a couple of points there and uh, get you to talk about uh, storage. There's some interesting uh, interesting science regarding storage and smart energy grid. Uh, here's a, an email from uh, from Chris, Chris Fenning. Why has population not been talked about? So that's part A. And many people could use less energy in their day-to-day -day lives as well. I run an organic vegetable farm while living off-grid. So uh, first of all, Matt Pachenza, population. You know, I should say that Heal Utah as an organization does not in any way work on those issues. I actually thought Mr. Linus did a really good job of talking about that in your previous interview. And, you know, I think, I think anyone who studies those issues knows the key to helping folks have smaller families is stuff like educating women and, you know, rights for women and, you know, good employment protections and all the kind of stuff when you have you know, two adults who are both working outside of the home, who um, who are both, you know, m building a life for their families, that tends to help folks make the decisions to, you know, have fewer children. So that's big and complicated stuff. It's not the work of Heal Utah. I'm hardly an expert, but I think we have a pretty clear sense as to what the kinds of things we need to do globally to help 
people make good decisions about family planning. So I'll leave that to folks smarter than I to talk about. And uh, before we go on to Part B of Chris's uh, email, if I can remember and characterize fairly Mark Linus's arguments last week on that, uh, he he basically dismisses that, saying it's just you know they're they're not really good workable solutions given political realities. And if you were trying to reduce the population in other methods, uh, you know besides. Uh, urging uh, smaller families uh, you know then that's that that has obvious moral implications uh so that that was his uh, take on on population but that is a big topic we'll maybe treat that chris in a, in a future program we're doing a series of programs on climate change uh, here's part b to have you respond to this uh, matt pacenza uh many people could use less energy in their day-to-day lives as well i run an organic vegetable farm says chris while living off-grid Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's no doubt, you know, we all need to, you know, as best as we can, given our means, you know, try to figure out ways to do those kind of things. My my family right now is choosing to invest, you know, I think we're going to invest $1,600 into replacement windows in our basement, and that'll, you know, bring down our total energy use by a small percent, and that's a, a nice little step in the right direction. And, and obviously, there's all kinds of things like that people can do in terms of efficiency and, you know, from light bulbs to windows to insulation and, and you know, the size of your home, all kinds of stuff. Um, you know, in terms of going off the grid and generating your own, I think, you know, you just have to recognize it is a choice limited by geography, by, you know, if you live in an apartment building, that's not going to work real well. And it's also a choice limited by by class, by your resources. So I think, you know, I think that's great. And I wish I could do more of it myself. And hopefully my family will be able to make that choice down the road. But ultimately, you know, we live in an urban world. The vast majority of people live in cities and fairly dense locations, um, you know. And so we need to come up with solutions that, that don't just put the burden on an individual to make a choice to do something on the roof of their home, because practically that's not, you know, six billion people aren't making that choice. Here's a comment from Dave Barker on the Utah Public Radio's Facebook page. There's no doubt, he says, that a balanced energy plan must include some choices that are less than perfect. However, when things like eliminating incandescent bulbs becomes a popular government-bashing activity for so many, you wonder what kind of rational discussion you can manage to initiate. He's getting to uh, you know the obvious political realities, the political discussion that uh, we have to engage in. And uh, as environmentalists, if you want to want to win... The argument, uh, you're going to have to engage in the, in the political arena. It's true. And I think, you know, I think there's a there's an unfortunate way in which environmentalism got caricatured over the years as something where, you know, we want everyone to be miserable and we want people to put on seven sweaters and, you know, and huddle around, a, you know, put a bad light bulb and, and, you know, sing Kumbaya or something. And, you know, I, I do think that there's a way in which I feel like you need to talk about prosperity. And I, I do this in talks, and I think this is an unusual thing perhaps for an environmentalist to do. But it is totally fair to say, you know, cheap fossil fuels have built our modern world, and they've allowed us these extraordinary things. You know, we live in this era, many of us, especially in the United States, live in this era of an amazing privilege. And, you know, the recreation opportunities and our ability to do to live this comfortable life is is so extraordinary. And, and in large part, we owe that to cheap fossil fuels. And I think that you have to say that out loud on some level, because people think that if you don't say that, they think you're just totally blind and ignorant to, to how, you know, we get to live in the world we live in now. And my big point is that, okay, I'll accept that as a given. But research over the last few decades has made crystal clear there's a cost to that. 
that, you know, and the cost is the warming planet, the cost is our health, our lives, our lungs. And so now as a people, we need to take a deep breath and, and move, you know, as quickly and efficiently and safely and reliably as possible in a smarter direction. Um, and so I think if we could frame things more like that and rather in that sort of like chastising tone where you make people feel guilty about the world and you you sort of, you know, make it seem like, you know, your affluence is, is you know, punishing the rest of us. I think there's just ways in which that rhetoric has, has really disempowered people and also allowed them to caricature environmentalists in a, in a, in a less than friendly light. Here's a uh, an email question from Greg and Logan. By the way, uh, we have another uh, two or three minutes. UPRAccess at gmail.com or 1-800-826-1495. Here's what Greg says. What would need to change about nuclear to make this a viable option for you? You know, I think that's a really tough question. And I, you know, you have said a few times that we cross it off the list. And I, I think what is true is that, that the current kind of nuclear reactor we don't see as a good option. Um, you know, the kind that uses all this water and produces all this waste and costs all this money. But I personally am not going to tell you, I don't ever think at any point ever in the future, there isn't a place for some kind of nuclear technology that might be possible. They might come up with something which uses less water and produces less waste and is safer and, and that folks could get comfortable with. But we're not there now. And, you know, there's a lot of people out there who talk about these small scale reactors and you could bury them in your backyard and they would be these perpetual machines and not use any water. And and they throw all this stuff out there. But the practical truth is that none of those are licensed. None of those are actually, you know, being used by commercially by anyone. And when people are proposing a nuclear reactor, like the proposed nuclear reactors on the Green River in southern Utah, they are proposing effectively um, a sort of slightly more modern and perhaps slightly safer version of the same technology we've had around for 50 or 60 years. And we don't think that technology makes a lot of sense, particularly um, in the context of living in a dry state and particularly given how expensive it is. But, you know, is it possible that something might come along down the road? I think it is. And I don't think any of us should just automatically say no to all those things. I think it is good to have an open mind, good to carefully consider what might come. Much more to be said on the subject. We have a series going on climate change, and I think the next program up will uh, will treat in depth genetically modified organisms, genetically modified crops. Some say this is, has to be part of a solution. Others say there are problems and dangers here. We'll assemble a panel on GMOs coming up. Also, maybe some of the science here. We didn't get to talk about the smart grids and compressed air energy storage, but you can go to the website, healutah.org, link over to several articles uh, that will talk about uh, some of this uh, very interesting science. Matt Pachenza, Policy Director with Heal Utah, has been our guest. Thank you so much. Thank you, Tom. Really enjoyed it. Coming up tomorrow, we're going to talk about higher education. We'll have with us Utah State University President Stan Albrecht in the first half of the program. Second half, some other university presidents, including uh, Michael Benson, president of uh, Southern Utah University. We'll ask about rising costs and uh, innovations and the future of higher education. Also get a legislative wrap uh, from the presidents, President Stan Albrecht and others, on the program tomorrow. For producers Addison Pace and Danny Hayes, I'm Tom Williams. Thanks for listening to Access Utah Today.